there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Thanks so much for pressing play. If you're interested in journalism, whether print or broadcast, and you want some tips for how to build your multimedia profile, then this is definitely the episode for you. Because my next guest was a broadcast news executive who identified a future trend, this was back over 30 years ago, and has since built a successful career around teaching others how to DIY their own multimedia journalism. But before I introduce you to Michael Rosenblum, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays where you can get a sneak peek at the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my prescient next guest is Michael Rosenblum, the founder and CEO of Rosenblum TV, a world leader in video training. Over 30 years ago, Michael pioneered what is today known as the video journalist or VJ. That's basically a reporter who travels the world by themselves with a video camera or maybe even just a smartphone and shoots and edits and reports their own stories. Michael also founded the New York Times TV and helped to co-found Current TV along with former Vice President Al Gore. To date, Michael and his wife have trained over 40,000 people to shoot, edit, and tell stories, whether it's for television, online, or for corporations. Michael is also the author of the book, iPhone Millionaire, How to Create and Sell Cutting-Edge Video. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated on your green tea and ready to go? (laughs) Thanks, Andrea. I'm completely caffeinated on green tea and ready to go. Fantastic. So as I said, you are currently the CEO of Rosenblum TV, which for our young listeners who may think that you have a YouTube show, no, this is (laughs) not that kind of Rosenblum TV. But it can certainly help folks who would like to start a YouTube show. Yes, unquestionably. The fact is, Andrea, when I started in the business, there were three networks and five local stations. And if you wanted to work in television, you went to work for a network, which I did for CBS. But today, that barrier to entry is gone, and anyone can start, run, and own a very profitable television channel of their own. The trick, of course, is profitability. I want to ask you about profitability, but let's get to the kind of the nuts and bolts of how you train people of all ages to get out there and be able to produce content, whether for their own channel or someone else's. We do this in two ways, Andrea. The first is we have an online uh, video film school called the VJ.com, where we have uh, about 1,200 separate lessons, how to shoot, how to cut, but most importantly, how to do storytelling, how to make something compelling, how to start your own business, the legal stuff, all of that. And then on top of that, 
My wife and I run a series of four-day intensive boot camps where we take in a group of 20 people or so and teach them really how to do the whole thing. It's very hands-on. They go out, they shoot, they come back, we screen, we have critique sessions. And at the end of four days, we can turn anyone into a professional television maker. It's not that difficult to do. And all you need today is, is a smartphone. What are all the different outlets? And by that, I mean companies or I mentioned YouTube. Obviously, there are all these other social media channels. But where are the places that many of your students end up going to work? The trick here is to be able to make money out of this thing. I mean, anybody can take a video camera or or a phone and put video on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. But for us, that's a complete waste of time. We're interested in the people who pay. And in today's world, this runs a spectrum from every company that has an online website needs video and they have a voracious appetite for video because it's so ephemeral. So if you can make perfect video, that's the first place to start. Even though we always tell people, go down the street, knock on the door, the local nail salon or the local pizzeria. And if you can take your phone and turn around a one or two minute video for them, that's a start, even if you only get 50 or $100 for the video. And that escalates all the way up to creating programming for the world of cable. And today there are 2,000 cable channels in the United States alone. They run 24 hours a day each, so they have an appetite for four and a half million hours of content every year. And if you can make a compelling cable series with your phone, which some people are capable of doing, they pay up to two hundred and fifty to $300,000 per half hour, and they buy them in blocks of 13. So the opportunities here are pretty much limitless. So let's get to the monetization for someone who wants to start their own channel. What advice do you have? The barrier to entry for having a channel used to be you had to make a deal with an MSO or get a cable channel or you had to sell stuff or license stuff to a broadcaster. The advent of, of the internet that carries broadband now means that that barrier is done away with, which means anyone can launch their own cable channel. In fact, if on the VJ.com and both in the boot camps, we run a session called How to Start Your Own Cable Channel. The trick here is first you have to make content that people want to watch. And our advice is always to create content about something you know something about because that's what you're going to spend the rest of your life doing. Once you create the content, the revenue tends to come from two places. One is subscription, which is difficult to do. But the other is selling advertising or do click and buys if you're in a business that has a product. Those are easier to do. And, of course, if you're creating your own cable channel, it doesn't take that much revenue to make it profitable. The days of having to have million-dollar edit suites and $50,000 cameras are finished. If you have a phone and an idea and you create a website and begin to populate it with video and you can attract enough people – advertising will come and you can bring in five or $10,000 a month in ad revenue. It's not that difficult to do. Fantastic. As you were describing that, Michael, I was thinking, boy, that really parallels the podcasting world, which of course isn't about video. It's about audio. But I am broadcasting right now with a microphone that is plugged into my laptop. Yes, exactly right. And and if you want, I, actually looking at your stuff, Andrea, I thought I could flip you into a, into an online TV channel if you're ever interested. Hey, I am interested. <laughs> we'll talk when we get off. <laughs> we'll talk, as they say. Okay. So, Michael, as you may know, most of our listeners on Time for Coffee are college students. Maybe some of them have graduated. But for those who are still in college right now, 
What advice do you have for them in terms of classes that they could or should be taking while they're still in college that would prepare them for the do-it-yourself multimedia world that exists today? Right. Well, I don't know the classes per se are going to do them much good. It's kind of what you study is, is, you know, an abstraction, although it's intellectually worthwhile. If you're still in college, I think that, and you want to do this, then get your phone and start making content. And in the beginning, it's going to be terrible. But the more content you make, the better you're going to be. It's like being a writer 40 or 50 years ago, you know. When I graduated from Williams, I got a thing called a Watson Foundation Fellowship, which allowed me to travel around the world for three years photographing. I went across Central Asia overland by myself the first year. I went from London to Kathmandu. And when I went through Italy, I picked up a small Olivetti typewriter, and I had this delusional idea of becoming a writer. So when I got to Kathmandu, I found myself a room in the Kathmandu guest house on Pommel, and I took out my typewriter, and I, I wrote a letter to a man named Peter Matheson, who had written a book called The Snow Leopard, which oh, influenced yes. me enormously. Yeah. So I wrote this 10-page, you know, when you're 20 years old, I wrote this 10-page typewritten letter to Peter Matheson. I read your book. I want to be a writer. I think you're a great writer. I want to be like you. And I mailed it off to him. And about three weeks later, I, he wrote back to me. He sent me my letter back, and he wrote on the front of it in red magic marker, if you want to write, write, but don't write to me, signed Peter Matheson, <laughs> which actually was... <laughs> the best advice I ever got. So for people who want to be in the video business, I always tell them, get out the camera and just start making stuff. And it's going to be raggedy and terrible at first and pursue every stupid idea that you have. Don't stop making hour documentaries. Just keep making minutes and keep posting them or send them to me after you join the VJ.com and I'll critique them. But the more you do, the better you'll get. And that's really the best way to get started. Wonderful. Michael, one of the things that you know I do when I coordinate an interview ahead of time with guests is to offer you the opportunity to suggest questions that I could ask you during the interview. And one of the suggestions you had was about how terrible the business is now for society. And by the business, Ah, I'm sure you mean the video multimedia business or the news business. The news business. And how the media machine, in your words, has warped society and how young people can change it. So over to you. Well, the essence of my new book coming out, (laughs) Don't Watch This, which hopefully will be out soon. The average American, depressingly, spends seven hours and 55 minutes a day watching television, whether it's YouTube or Instagram videos or broadcast television cable doesn't make any difference. That's an astonishing amount of time to commit to a medium that didn't exist 50 years ago. And it has a warping effect on society for many, many reasons. But the worst part is the news and journalism side, because the news and the television journalism business, it's a business. The business is predicated on selling advertising. That's where the money comes from. And in the television business, you, the viewer, are not the client. You, the viewer, are the product. You're the thing that's being sold to the advertiser. So the object of the business is to maximize the number of people watching the program so that the advertiser gets more money. And so television news militates towards scary stories, terrorists, fires, car crashes, terrible things. And if you watch this over and over and over again, it terrorizes the viewership. You become frightened to go outside. You think terrorists are at every corner. You think there's going to be a school shooting every single day. When in reality, these things, as bad as they are, are quite anomalous and they represent a tiny, tiny fraction of what goes on. The world is full of terrific stories. And if you really want to get into this business, then I would say, 
Do not spend the rest of your life chasing car crashes or school shootings because it's done much too much. But the opportunity here is to take this medium and to do something really interesting and beautiful and creative with it. And if you look at the invention of the printing press, before the printing press, all content was controlled by the church, and it was very limited and narrow and truncated. And the printing press gave everyone the opportunity to publish whatever they wanted to do. And that's where books and novels and all the great works of literature came from, that piece of technology. Your smartphone, your iPhone, is the digital printing press of the 21st century. It frees you to do something far beyond what you see on CNN, your former employer, I'm sorry to say, and every other news program. You can do spectacular things, and it doesn't cost you anything. So go out and take it out and do something different and beautiful and creative is my advice. I love that. That is so beautiful to really empower young people. Absolutely. Build a world in their own image for the better. Absolutely. The worst thing you can do is to pick up this technology and just mimic what you see on television already. It would be a tragic waste of enormous potential. So, Michael, you mentioned the invention of the printing press. Now, you're not an inventor. You didn't invent the video camera or the smartphone, but you did pioneer the VJ, the video journalist. Could you take us back to around the mid-1980s and share what was happening in journalism or maybe outside of journalism that made you think, we're going to need to train reporters and videographers to be one-man bands? Into the Wayback Machine, Mr. Peabody. Let's go. (laughs) It's spinning. (laughs) In 1988, I was a producer for CBS Sunday Morning, which is a show that's still on the air. I was annoyed and frustrated because it was very formulaic and I was doing the same thing every week. And I'd only been there for two years. There are people on the credits that I see now who were there when I was there. It's 30 odd years ago. So I quit. And of course, my parents thought I was out of my mind because I had gotten my first decent job. And I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I quit and I bought a small home video camera, which is a high eight, which had just come out. I went to live in a Palestinian refugee camp in the Gaza Strip, in Jabalia refugee camp. And I went to live there for a month because I felt that the coverage was sort of always looked the same. You know, it was always the guy with the stand up and throwing the rocks and then that would be the end of it. So I moved in with a family in Jabalia and I lived with them for a month and I shot video every day. And uh, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I spent so much time with them. And I happened to be there during the first Intifada. So I got this fantastic access. I came back and I, I didn't have a job anymore. So I took my pile of tapes over to Les Crystal who was running the McNeil Lira News Hour, which is now the PBS News Hour? And I showed him my tapes, and he bought two pieces from me for fifty thousand dollars, wow. which I thought was that I thought was pretty good for one month's work. But of course, it was a lot cheaper than if they had sent a cameraman, a soundman, a producer, a crew, and a reporter, hotels, meals, and everything else. And so uh, that's how I got started. And after that, I went to uh, Cambodia and I hung out with Khmer Rouge. And they did the same thing. And I just started traveling around the world with a camera. And in fact, I did a piece for Nightline. Your father sent me to um, Uganda. And I spent three months finding the index case for AIDS in the CC Islands. They gave me a whole half hour. And I might have just kept doing that, except a Swedish billionaire named Jan Stenbeck. If you ever read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, he's actually in the book. He's the only real character because Steve Larson worked for him. He heard what I did. So he flew me to Stockholm. He asked me this kind of seminal, life-changing question. He understood the economics of what I had done. I'd gotten rid of everybody, but I was just having a good time. 
And he said to me, can you teach other people to do this? And I said, which I believe to this day, any idiot can do this. I came back to New York and he capitalized my first company and I got 30% equity in a business he set up and I started to build television stations based on this model. We began in Norway and I found 30 young in college journalists and I taught them this very circumscribed method of shooting and editing and storytelling by yourself. We built these stations all over Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. And then Time Warner called me up and said, can you do one here? So I did New York One, which is still running here in New York City, and then uh, Channel One in London, and then Switzerland. And we just started doing these things all over the world. So, you know, it was the right idea, the right time, and the right place, and the right technology. But I became very enamored with two things. One is the notion of authorship. In conventional television, when you go out with a cameraman, a producer, and edit, like they do at 60 Minutes, there's no real authorship. It's a group activity, which I don't really believe in. But by giving an individual journalist the camera and now the phone, and it didn't cost anything, you know, you didn't have to pay anybody any salaries or airfares, I would say follow your own interests. So we created a content that was very, very different, much more intimate and much more personal. And then the other thing was that we introduced a notion that I like to call freedom to fail. If you're going out with a camera crew, as you remember from your days with CNN, you know, you have eight hours with the cameraman and you have to get the thing on the air and you have a deadline. And so you end up making the same story in different iterations over and over and over again. But when you're by yourself, if you're a writer and you just have a laptop, you can make mistakes all day long. It doesn't cost anything. So the medium now for the first time can actually evolve where conventional television, when I look at CBS Sunday Morning, the pieces are exactly the same as we were making in 1988 because everyone is afraid of making a mistake. When you're just working by yourself, I always tell people, make mistakes. I want you to fail because by failing is the only way you'll get better. Tell me if you agree with this, Michael, because my takeaway from that story, which is really incredible, is that you were bored when you were at CBS Sunday morning, you saw a future that didn't look terribly exciting and you decided to take a big risk. You quit oh. a great job and you followed your curiosity and you basically followed your own drummer. I mean, you were your own drummer. Yes. In retrospect, it looks like a very intelligent thing to have done. But I have to tell you, at the moment you do it, you're, I don't know, in my late 20s and I was making $100,000 a year and I had finally become a network television producer and I was on a hot career path. And I went home to my family. I said, I'm quitting the job. I have no income. I'm going to take off and try this crazy idea that nobody's ever done. They were ready to have me committed somewhere. It was an incredibly crazy thing to do, but it actually worked out quite well. But I actually think, and I have the advantage of getting a little window into your time in college, but I think there's a theme here because when you went to Williams College, you told me you started off as a poli-sci major and then something happened. And I want you to share with our listeners the leap that you took while you were in college. I went to Williams. I was a political science major and I was going to go to law school. I was in the pre-law program and everybody thought that was a great idea. And I actually hated it, but I didn't know enough to do anything else. And, you know, I sort of did the minimum necessary. I mean, I got good grades, but I wasn't really enjoying it. And then a terrific professor named Bob Gaudino, who has since died, pulled me aside and said, you are wasting your time here, young man. I thought, well, probably, but at least I'm going to law school and be a big success. And he said, you have to get out of here. And so working with him, we arranged a year away in which I first went to a place called Lick Branch Hollow in Hazard County, Kentucky, 
And I got a job as a coal miner, which is not the usual job for a little Jewish guy from Long Island with glasses. And I lived with a coal mining family in Appalachia. And then he sent me out to a farm in Iowa where I worked on a farm and we raised Duroc hogs and corn and soybeans. And then uh, I got a job working on a construction crew building confinement breeders. So by the time I came back to Williams a year later, I was a very different person than I had been when I left. So I quit my poli-sci pre-law thing that I hated. I became a double major in studio art. I rented a room from a professor named Tom Krenz who went on to run the Guggenheim, and I became a history major. So I double majored. I took a lot of photographs and when I graduated, uh, I got a Watson Foundation Fellowship that paid my way to travel around for three years, travel around the world for three years, photographing and writing. So it was a completely life-changing experience. But it was essentially trashing the whole thing and, and just going off some blind direction no one had ever gone before. I mean, that is so incredible. I can't imagine there you are at an Ivy League college and your professor says, I think you're wasting your time studying to become a lawyer. You need to quit school and go for a year and be a coal miner and be a farmer and be a construction worker. What was the thinking behind that? It's what he called experiential education. And the funny thing, Andrea, is that that really stuck with me. So one of the great advantages of the video journalist thing, particularly with phones, and we do this to this day, is we take people when we put them through the boot camps. And once we've taught them to shoot and cut, which takes about a day, we ask them to inject themselves into uncomfortable situations embed themselves in places that they wouldn't normally go. If you, As you know, in television, if you go out with a crew and a reporter and a producer, you know, you do the stand-up, you shoot the B-roll, you do the interview, and you go home. But one of the great advantages with the VJ thing, we've just finished running a series of boot camps for Spectrum One, the 24-hour channel that we're launching in Los Angeles. And we took all the video journalists there, all the VJs, they call them MMJs, and once they get the thing together, we have them go live with homeless people in LA for a couple of days and and film the experience. So you can imagine the kind of reports they come back with are very, very different from conventional news. And the funny thing is it costs less, but it, it brings back this sense of authorship and it brings back this kind of intimacy. And that's really something I learned from Bob Gardino when I arrived in Lick Branch Hollow the first day so long ago. I can totally imagine that. And by the way, for our listeners, MMJs are multimedia journalists. It's basically a VJ. Michael, I'm sure this is something that you live and breathe and it is who you are. But I just see that thread that may have even begun before you got to college, but where you were encouraged to jump out of your comfort zone and go and do something that I'm guessing there were a lot of other students and your parents were thinking this is crazy that you're going to go and leave your Ivy League college set up here. You're going to be going off and working as a coal miner and a farmer and a construction worker for a year. What the heck are you doing? But then when you were at a great job at CBS Sunday Morning, you did the same thing. Yeah, I have a tendency to quit things. I taught for uh, eight years at, at Columbia Journalism School, and I taught another eight years at NYU. At NYU, I ran a very popular course. I had about 360 students in my class at NYU. And I used to start the class by telling the students to uh, go to the bursar's office and get their money back. It was about $72,000, which to me is pornographic. And I told them, get your money back and uh, go buy a video camera and then come and see me. 
and I will teach you how to do this in a, in a week. And then I want you to buy a plane ticket to someplace uncomfortable for you. And I want you to go and start making films and you just send them to me and I'll give you critiques on them. I think it's a better way for you to learn the profession. So uh, I had a couple of students who actually did that. And then the faculty got together and threw me out of NYU, which <laughs> I don't understand why. <laughs> I, I think we saw the writing on the wall for that one, Michael. But for those of our listeners who may not want to become journalists, who may want to be doing something very different, I still think there are really important life lessons in what you've done. I've always been very big on taking risks because what you learn is, for the most part, it's not going to kill you. And, and, you know, the Greeks used to say that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it, admittedly, in the beginning, it was terrifying. But what you learn pretty quickly is how much stronger you are than you think you are. It's about fear, I think. When I grew up in Long Island as a kid, I was very frightened of everything. And doing this kind of stuff gave me a, an enormous sense of self-confidence, which I keep to this day. And the funny thing is, just from a business perspective, they always say, the best deals are the ones that you can walk away from. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in a negotiation and I've just gotten up from the table and said, I don't want to do this. And by the time my hand is on the doorknob, they go, okay, 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 we'll give you what you want. So it, it pays off in almost every way. So I'm also guessing that there have been times and experiences in your professional life, Michael, when it didn't pay off. And oh, yeah. God knows I have had my fair share of failures and I'm sure there are many more to come. And I'm good with that because honestly, I believe even though they hurt like hell, you do become stronger. And actually, oftentimes you find greater happiness on the other side. So could you share a time an experience in your professional life when you just face planted? And more importantly, how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. I have an expression now that nothing succeeds like failure, because if you don't fail, it means you never pushed yourself to the limits and you never learned what your limits were. So when I was dealing with Stenbeck in Sweden, um, he came up with this idea for a, a TV series he wanted to do called Dromoflicken which is Swedish for dream girls. He came up to me and he said, well, you know, I have this idea for a show. And as soon as you hear that, it's a big mystique. <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah, because I was building TV stations and making shows. And he said, what is this? He says, you know, these small cameras you have. I go, yeah. He says, well, we get guys to take pictures of their wives or their girlfriends in the bathtub or getting dressed and undressed. And we put it on TV and give a prize. And I said, well, yeah, that's a very interesting, but I didn't really think. And he put his hand on me. He was huge. And he says, you will do this for me. Essentially, he wanted me to make softcore pornography, which I didn't really want to do. So instead, I made it into kind of a comedy show. And he started screaming and yelling at me. And he fired me on the spot, which it was my first really traumatic experience. My father in particular said, just give the guy what he wants. But I could see that this was not the road in the long run to, to doing what I wanted to do. But of course, you know, I lost the house in Sweden. I lost the job. I had an apartment in New York. I lost and I ended up on my parents' couch with no income for about six months. So it was a little traumatizing, but I think in retrospect, I probably did the right thing. So how did you recover? Ooh, that's a long story. I, uh, I started teaching at Columbia just to make some money. I ran into a, a guy named Kevin Close. He ended up running NPR, but he's actually then he was running The Voice of America. He hired me to flip The Voice of America from a shortwave radio operation to a television operation. That was the beginning of a comeback. In retrospect, it all looked great. But at the time, it was sort of terrifying. You know, I, I was I just got married and 
to my wife, we have to live on this pullout couch in my mother's apartment. <laughs> it doesn't look – and her father was an accountant and very uptight in, in, in Montreal. And he kept saying, I can't believe you married that loser, that failure. Oh, my God. <laughs> all in all, it didn't work out very well, you know. But <laughs> And you look at it in retrospect and you go, well, that was a brilliant move. because I made a fortune doing the VOA thing and that led to a million other things. Who knew? Who knew? But you know what? You followed your true north. You tried to kind of find a compromise, but ultimately you weren't going to compromise yourself. Well, yeah. You know, I was just stupid. (laughs) I'm not sure which. I knew I didn't want to become a Swedish pornography maker, so... (laughs) Really what he was looking for. Yeah, that's what was going through my mind while you were talking. I I, I could tell you unvarnished story, but you couldn't put it out for public consumption. Hey, we could, but you know what? Let's let's go to the final time for coffee question here instead. So, Michael, if you could go back to Williams and do it all over again, based on the many years of wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I transferred to Yale immediately because Williams, when I went, was an all men's school, which is not a normal place, a normal environment to grow up in. Outside of that, in a weird way, I I just would have told myself not to be so afraid. You know, I I mean, I I was terrified in those first couple of years because I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know it was going to turn out all right. And of course, everybody in my family and my friends were telling me I was an idiot. My old man starts screaming at me, goes, you've thrown away your life. You've thrown everything away. And he, he... Gave me a piece of paper with a, a phone number on a guy named Andy Parisi after I quit. And he said, call up Andy Parisi. I talked to him and he's got you a job as a, a garbage collector in Cedarhurst. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, that seems to be all you're capable of doing. So, it was a terrifying moment for me. So I guess I would tell myself there's nothing to be afraid of. Everything will be fine. But I didn't really believe it at the time. Where did you find the courage to push back? And even while you were hearing this very harsh critique and predictions of ruin from people who were close to you in your life and still go forward with taking the leap of faith. I could say that, you know, I had an innate belief in myself and stuff like that. But in all honesty, Andrew, I just didn't know what else to do. I had one idea and I just stuck with that one idea uh, forever. You know, Fred Friendly was my advisor in the business. I met him when I went to Columbia. And he gave me this fantastic piece of advice. He said, the biggest danger in life is one degree-itis. He said, you start with something and then you make a little compromise, you make a little compromise, a little compromise, and pretty soon you're at 180 degrees from where you started. So Fred always said to me, never compromise and never give up even one degree. And I think that's pretty much the best advice I ever got. So I, I didn't have any other ideas and I just kept going with the same thing. Well, I have to say, Michael, First of all, you're an immensely humble guy for all that you've done and an incredibly courageous guy. And I just have so much admiration for what you have done in your life. And just thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community, even though you're a green tea drinker. (laughs) It has been such a pleasure getting to know you a bit. No, Andrea, I really appreciate it. I had a great time getting to know you as well. And uh, I really appreciate your having me on the series. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.